The Apprenticeship of Giuseppe Lupo Written by Youssef L. Deeb Narrated by Jason Melnichuk Chapter 8 Mama and the Egg Of course, when Sister Mary Margaret announces to the dormitory that it's Giuseppe Lupo's birthday, Gio loses himself in the images of his daily fantasy of seeing his mama and of the excitement of finally burying himself into the universe of her bosom, of smelling her, of feeling her protection. Some of the boys, the older ones, the five- and six-year-olds, already much wiser than Gio's three, signal each other. They have an idea of what they expect Gio might do. They are not disappointed to soon see the puddle of wet form slowly at his feet. The birthday singing continues. There is a slow change in the way the boys sing, the way the singing turns to laughter. These triggers wake him from his fantasy. He recognizes the warm wetness flowing down his legs. He's horrified and begins to sob, drops the tangerine onto the now wet floor below him. His thoughts of Mama are once more connected with disappointment. At the orphanage, his home since he was two years old, Gio develops two unfortunate disorders. He frequently wets himself, and he sucks his right thumb continuously. This last habit he will continue to do until he is eight years old. Today he is turning four. Boys, boys, enough of this, Sister Mary Margaret calls out. Go line up for your morning cleanup and face washing. Let's go. She calmly places a hand on Gio's shoulder and whispers to him, As for you, Gio, I will unburden you of these wet clothes. Come, it's all right. We must get you ready for your mama. Many of the boys had developed behaviors and habits to compensate for the absence of their parents, especially their mothers. One boy regularly wakes up with his head covered in dark amber, caused by dried blood from his nosebleeds. Two or three others develop various forms of stutter. Some, like Geo, are bedwetters. The dormitory often smells of ammonia. The years move on at a snail's pace. Two years earlier, the divorce of Giuseppe Lupo's parents had been the talk of the town, the feverish gossip of two communities. Today it's nearly forgotten, replaced by fresher stories, but it still echoes and reverberates in both parents' conscience. It's also the envelope outlining Gio's perpetual loneliness at the orphanage. His days pass slowly, but he is too young and innocent to mourn his luck. To him, this is the world he is born into, and it's his reality. It was a dirty, no-holds-barred divorce. They were of opposing characters, religions, cultures, and nationalities. They battled over alimony and of the identity of Gio's true father. His father claims in court that Gio's mother had slept with the next-door neighbor, a cheap tactic formed by anger, not unusual in divorces. However, he soon admits that Gio is his son and that he would pay alimony. But there was a snag. 
The hitch was that these payments would go directly, in the form of donations to an orphanage school, and not to the mother. This was to spite the mother, and deny her having Gio with her, a solution she accepted, with tortured difficulty, since it guaranteed a French education for the boy, something she is not able to afford. Meanwhile, the sisters of St. Vincent de Paul Orphanage and School knew that Giuseppe Lupo is not a true orphan, yet they accept him. They play along since any money coming in was for the service of the others, the true orphans who have no means. In their mind, although the donations were coming from a Muslim father, Gio's mother was Catholic, and so there would always be a sliver of hope for the boy's faith. But for the sisters, spending the donations was a different matter. The orphanage and school were managed like a hermitage, much in line with the heritage and beliefs of their society in France and all over the world. There is a benefit to suffering and living a state of lacking, like Jesus lived and preached. As a result, the food offered to the boys was always less than the bare minimum. In the mess hall on the upper floor, the morning meal is stale bread, often moldy with a ring of moss-green color at the edges, and white cheese. Often the cheese had miniature translucent worms squirming in and out of tiny, near-invisible holes. The sisters, now generations away from their original mission, have transformed the notion of suffering to an art. It's a sin to throw away food, and with refrigerators still a decade away from being donated to the orphanage, nothing was ever thrown away. These good intentions turn into torture for the boys. Some of the orphanage boys would befriend the classmates who were not residents, the ones who were enrolled in the day school, the ones who went home every day, only so they could share in the sandwiches these boys brought from their homes. Often these were filled with mortadella, halva or an exotic smelling cheese. Gio didn't ask any of these boys for their sandwiches, but he loved the faint smell of the butter and strawberry jam sandwiches that one boy always had. These were delicacies that he had never tasted. Yet the moldy bread and wormy cheese were just the half of it. The large mess hall windows were adjacent, and only two meters away from the windows of the second floor of the local police station. This outpost covered the small suburb all the way to the port area. The mess hall faced the police torture room window. Many days over breakfast, the boys would stare at their food as they listened to the steady slaps, punches and screams of one man or another being beaten to confess something or other. Over time, the sound of a man crying, beseeching his torturer to release him, makes Gio forget even for a brief moment his own predicament. The moldy bread, the worm-infested cheese, and the dead silent vacuum-like absence of his mother and father. Over time, the beatings play like a tempo in his mind, like an evil-sounding clock or gong. Often, he sees an imaginary white dove's huge wings slowly flutter in the gap between the two buildings. Most of all, 
he pictures the beater and the beaten and imagines them to be actors faking or pretending it. It's a theater of torture that they are performing in, solely for his entertainment. The albino worms participate, slithering in and out of the rocky slopes of the cheese and dance along. The moldy bread is the stage curtain. He doesn't give these thoughts away to anyone. He is now building a fantasy world. His escape, by rewiring his brain to see the world and make sense of it in his own way. Anything and anyone his eyes lay on are now part of his very own private theater troupe. This is his escape. When his mother sees how consistently thin he is, she is unable to complain to the sisters, even though they are of her own faith, for fear that the complaint would reach the father. This might have him move Geo to a lesser school for spite. So she prepares for Geo food that she brings every time she comes to see him on one of her short visits. She brings him twelve perfectly boiled eggs in a crinkly cellophane bag. Geo loves boiled eggs. The orphanage does not serve them. The smell of a boiled egg becomes the smell of his mama's love and of her tenderness. The perfection of the shape of the egg is associated with mama's wonderful image. Eggs fascinate Geo. He is always surprised at discovering the yolk, with its tender green-blue edge, like a soft borderline between the white and the yellow. It reminds him of the edge of an eye's pupil. He sees the two characters of the boiled egg, the soft, tender, gelatinous white, easy to open and eat, so subtle in taste, and the delicious, rich, yellow inside that he always swallows whole and always, always chokes on. He hides the twelve eggs under the bed after his mother leaves, and a day or two later, he recognizes the familiar smell. Much as he loves boiled eggs, when his mother leaves, the great missing he feels for her in the ensuing day or two means he forgets about the eggs under his bed. Soon the eggs begin to rot, and the rotting smell reminds him. He finds them again, and spends a long time looking inside the plastic bag. At the eggs, still inside, now polluted with small flying bugs that appear like magic out of nowhere. Where do they come from? Years later, while working as an assistant film editor in Toronto, on a documentary series with the world-renowned British zoologist and founder of the amateur naturalist movement, Gerald Durrell, eggs come back to pleasantly surprise him. He learns of the wonderful magical connection between egg shapes and mothers. The egg is a unique, perfect package in strength and shape. It is not a sphere like a ping-pong ball, because if the egg were a sphere, it might roll away from its mother's nest. But as a conical shape, tapered to one edge and fat on the other, if it rolls away from the mother's nest, it will circle back to the mother. Geo delights in this discovery, and designs a t-shirt with an egg labeled Mama. He also learns that the more dangerous a predator, such as owls and hawks, 
the more spherical the shape. The less a bird is able to fly, such as chickens or if the bird nests on a mountainside, the shape is conical to ensure the egg rolls back to mama. His mother is arriving on the early train from Cairo's Bab el-Hadid station to the Sidi Geber station in Alexandria to spend three hours with Gio. The station is far from the school, but is close to her uncle's house, where she can have some privacy with Gio. She does this whenever she is saved enough to buy the day return ticket. She does this whenever she can afford to tailor a new dress to wear for little Gio. And she does this for eight years. <laughs> 